During the middle to late industrial age and then on into the 20th century, there was a profession known as knocker-uppers. And knocker-uppers would be the people who would go around and wake people up in the morning. In the industrial age, when many people were coming from uh, the farmlands where the rising and setting of the sun guided their getting up and going to bed, then coming into the city and, and the industrialization that was going on and shifts and, and checking in on the right time, they needed some help. And so they hired knocker-uppers to come around in the morning and knock on windows. And sometimes they would use a short club, knock on the doors, other times they would use a long bamboo kind of light stick and tap on the windows. Some even used pea shooters to shoot at the upstairs windows. And this happened all through England and Ireland and the Netherlands, even a little bit in the United States, but mostly in Europe. And there were even towns, like one mining town uh, in County Derry, I think it was, in one mining town, they had slates uh, attached to the outside of their doors, and each night before they would go to bed, they'd write their shift the next morning. And then an employee of the mine would come around in the morning as the knocker-upper and wake people up according to the, sh the time of their shift. And this continued into as late as the 1940s and 50s, even in one place, into the early 1970s. People needed help getting out of bed. This, and it started before alarm clocks were worth anything. They were expensive and they were not accurate. Some of you may still need a knocker-upper to come help you get out of bed. I don't know. Maybe that's what your mom and dad does for you every time you don't get out of bed. But in the physical realm, we have to get up. And in those days, there were consequences if you didn't get up. If you showed up late for one shift, you could lose your job because there would be somebody waiting to take your place. So it was a very important thing to get up on time. Well, I would submit to you that it is even more of an important thing to wake up spiritually. It's even more of an important thing to see the dawning of the light and the glory of God and to respond to that with worship because that is waking up for eternity. That is waking up for the rest of your existence on this life and then for all eternity as worshipers of God. And in one sense, the church today, we're the knocker-uppers. We're the ones that go about shining the light of Christ into the world in such a way that they are awakened from their slumber, they are awakened from their darkness, and that's the way God intended it to be. And we think of that as the church, but Isaiah understood this as well. Now, we're coming into this section of Isaiah in chapter 60. 60. Can you believe we're saying that? Chapter 60? <laughs> We started Isaiah, here's a little aside, we started Isaiah on the second Sunday of February two years ago. I didn't look at how many sermons there have been, probably around 80 sermons. But here's the encouraging part. There are, I wrote it down here, in the book of Isaiah, there are 1,292 verses. And you know, most of those have four lines, five lines, six, line, six lines. Guess how many we have to go? 103. We're making progress in Isaiah. So it's been a glorious study, but we are winding down. Eight or nine weeks is what I'm guessing in Isaiah. And then if you're, if you're curious, we're going into the Gospel of Luke after that. So we'll move from Isaiah to the Gospel of Luke. Back to the light. 
Isaiah tells us that the light is God. It is his glory. It is Yahweh's glory. It shines in and through his messianic servant, but it shines on us in such a way that the nations see. And remember in Isaiah's day, we have Isaiah writing in the 8th century, and he's giving these truths that there will be a coming Messiah, and he's already told us this early on in Isaiah in chapter 2, remember? Early on in chapter 2, he says that the nations will come, be drawn to the light, and come to um, the holy mountain. This is where God lives. This is where Yahweh dwells with these people. They will come to the holy mountain so that Yahweh can instruct them how to live. So this has been a theme since the second chapter, back when we were in the second chapter in 1897, back when the knocker-uppers still had a job. Back then, that was the, the theme of Isaiah starting even then. So we hit this kind of pinnacle section of the last half of Isaiah, maybe even the pinnacle of the entire book in chapter 60, 61, and 62. And this is where we will start today, is in chapter 60. And what should be on our minds, let me give you just a couple of things to think about. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, and we've seen this over and over in Isaiah, the Old Testament writers would use Old Testament language about the sacrificial system, what it meant to worship God, what it meant for God's presence to dwell with his people. He would use the, that language of the day to talk about future fully realized realities. And we see that very brightly in chapter 60, 61, and 62. So I want you to keep in mind, all the way through chapter 60, we, we are with Isaiah hearing his Old Testament language but we have New Testament is the ultimate fulfillment. And I would submit to you in Isaiah 60, the primary focus and application is for that time when Jesus comes, the Messiah that's promised in Isaiah's day, promised in Isaiah 53 with his work and what he will do. He comes and then between his first and second coming and after. That's what's in view in Isaiah 60. I'll prove that as we go along, but I want you to keep that in your mind. So this is a message to us. This is a message for us who, upon us, those people upon whom the light and the glory of God have shined on us and now shines through us to, to a lost and dying world as we see the nations bring their wealth to God. Let's stand together. and Let me read Isaiah chapter 60. You may say, 22 verses, can we get through all this? Yes. And here's why. Isaiah is summing up so much thought that he's had. So much of this we've already heard. We just need to remind ourselves of, its, of what this, uh, the imagery means, but it's already been given to us, sometimes in multiple places in Isaiah already. Isaiah chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of Yahweh has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But Yahweh will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant, your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, the wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, 
the young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come, that shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of Yahweh. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastland shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them, for the name of Yahweh our God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. Foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut, that my people may bring, in, bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of Yahweh, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations, you shall nurse at the breast of kings, and you shall know that I, Yahweh, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold, and instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze, instead of stones, iron, I will make you your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more, and your light by day, for the, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But Yahweh will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for Yahweh will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hand, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am Yahweh. In its time, I will hasten it. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So in these verses, we are shown four promises for Yahweh's people in his perfect city. Four promises for Yahweh's people in his perfect city. Now before we start, we need to remind ourselves of chapter 59 because they're, they're tied together. I'm not going to re-preach it, but I want you to turn to chapter 59 
where we covered last week, so we can see where this, this glorious command to arise and shine um, flows from. Remember in chapter 59, we had this strong presentation of the gospel. We started out, look in the first two verses. Behold, Yahweh's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. Now remember, they, they, were, they were walking in darkness, and they're going to confess again that they're walking in darkness. And there's the worry that God is not going to redeem them from captivity, or in the future, when people are considering the work of the Messiah. And he says, no, the Lord's hand is not shortened. He is powerful, and he hears. Remember, they were, they were um, participating in worship in a way that, that caused, that they thought they were doing the worship, and God wasn't hearing them. And God says, I'm not hearing you because of the way you're worshiping. And why? Look at verse 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Then in the next few verses, he uh, reveals to the people the sins in very broad terms. Uh, not specifics, but broad, showing that their entire lives are in opposition to him. And then look what's in chapter uh, 59, verses 9 and 10. This is where the people begin their confession. The people enter into a confession and repentance. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight among those in full vigor are like dead men. And they go on to confess their sin. And then Yahweh responds, beginning in the second half of verse 15, by saying, he looks around and he sees no one there to do the work of the vindicator, so he in his own strength, his own arm, his suffering servant, his coming Messiah, will take care of everything. And part of that will be vengeance on those who are unrepentant, but salvation for those who were repentant. Look at verse 20. And a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares Yahweh. Redemption comes to those who turn. Redemption comes to those who repent. And God says he will do that in verse 21 according to his covenant. And all the, 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 the seed of the Messiah will come to him. Remember that language, it was in Isaiah 53 as well, that his offspring he will bring to himself. And so this, co this covenant is brought again as the way this will happen. So this chapter 60 with this initial command does not come out of a vacuum. It comes out of this. God is going to rise up and when he does, this is what his people will look like. Chapter 60. So the first promise beginning in the first three verses, Yahweh's light and glory will shine upon his people and the nations will see it and be drawn. Verse 1, arise, shine, for your light has come. Now look at the parallel verse right below it. And the glory of Yahweh has risen upon you. So the light is for the people. Now remember, Isaiah has used light uh, more than any other prophet uses the metaphor of light. Isaiah has used it throughout. There's a light that's going to shine in the darkness, quoted in the New Testament in Matthew as fulfilled in Christ. He's talked about those who are under judgment groping in darkness, but the light is going to come upon them. And the light is himself, but it's also his glory. That's what it says right in the first verse. And the glory of Yahweh has risen upon you. So this marks out the people. How did God say this was going to happen? Yahweh said it's going to happen through his servant. 
that his arm, his servant, will accomplish all of this. So he's speaking about a time when the people are looking forward to the Messiah or back toward the Messiah's work. It can encompass all of those, but we are definitely in view here, are we not? Because Yahweh's light has risen upon us. His glory shines upon us. Verse 2, for behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. Now, we've learned that over and over. God is constantly judging sin. He just has not done it fully and finally yet, has he? Hallelujah? Amen? He has not done it fully and finally, but he is constantly involved in judgment. And so there is a darkness over the people who are lost. There, There is a lack of light over people who are lost, because they refuse to see the light. But... Yahweh will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. So there's a repetition of the first verse telling us that God's glory, his light is shown, and it's, it's shined upon a specific people. Now I want to tell you that all the way through this, this chapter, every time you see that second person pronoun, you or your, it's a feminine singular pronoun, and it is referring to God's people. It will use language of Old Covenant Jerusalem, but we'll see all the way through, it is including the nations. It is, it is all those who will be God's people because of the work of the Messiah. Verse 3, And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. You see what's happening here. God has shined in Christ on his people, and his people shine Christ to the nations. Sound familiar? This is what the New Testament writers pick up, this teaching right here. Now, we could go to more passages, but I'm just going to bring you to a couple. In Luke chapter 1, Zechariah prophesying about his son, John the Baptist. And he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadows of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The same themes from Isaiah 60, and really from multiple places, but are clearly seen in Isaiah 60, are prayed by Zechariah. Part of Simeon's blessing over Jesus in the temple in the next chapter. My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Do you see what he does? Light and glory. Gentiles, Israel, all wrapped together as happening in Christ. Turn to John chapter 1, the Gospel of John. Keep your finger in Isaiah. We're coming back there, but I want you to turn to the Gospel of John chapter 1. And I want you to see these themes of light and glory and who is the light and what is seen. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, in the beginning, with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. 
The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, We have received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So this wonderful prologue, mixing up the ideas, mixing together the ideas of light and glory, all assigned to Jesus and all assigned to what will happen through his people. You can turn back to Isaiah, but listen to just two more passages. One, I wasn't in the room, but I think Luke mentioned... uh, Matthew 5, 16 today. Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see our job description if we are in Christ? Isaiah is telling us this in the 7th century, 7th and 8th century BC. He's telling us the exact same thing. In Ephesians chapter 5, quoting a verse from Isaiah chapter 54 or 45, my mind slips. At one time you were darkness, Paul says, but now you are light of the Lord, light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. The fruit of light. Not the light itself. The fruit of light. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, quoting from Isaiah, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Now that's just a smattering of verses where the New Testament takes the ideas brought in Isaiah and applies them to the church. So we, as we listen back in Isaiah chapter 60, everything that's being said is being said as the fruit of the work of the Messiah. Now the other thing we have to remember is we live in an already not yet world. Remember? We live in an an already not yet world. The kingdom has already dawned on us, but it is not yet completed. It's not yet consummated. So we are talking about the already with nods to to um, to the not yet But all the way through here, you see the excitement building until we get to the end. And we are clearly in the not yet. We are clearly in the new heavens and new earth. That is what we're tasting in our lives now, which is why Isaiah 60 is a book for the church. Look back at Isaiah 60. Not only has Yahweh's light and glory will shine upon his people, and the nations will see it and be drawn, 
Now that's key for us to remember. Shines upon his people and the nations see it and they'll be drawn. They are drawn to be God's people. The second promise, Yahweh will welcome the wealth of the nations and his people will be thrilled. Look at verse 4. Light up your, lift up your eyes all around and see. Now this phrase is used three other times in Isaiah. And it's always used for the people to be directed to the work of God. Two other times for his work of salvation. One for his work of judgment. You can remember, Isaiah 49 is crucial into this section. I told you we have a lot of themes that are brought back together. Again, I'm not going to point you to the the, uh, original reference of all of them. It would take too long to do in the sermon. But Isaiah 49 is key. Remember that picture where Israel is pictured as as a brokenhearted and desolate mother who looks around and there are no children to take care of her. And what does God say? Lift up your eyes and see. And then he shows all of the people that he's drawing in from the nations, even the people in his metaphorical illustration, whisper into the mother's ear, Israel, and say, there's not room for all of us. And God expands the borders to make room for all of God's people in his kingdom. So that's all being brought to us again in its fullness in Isaiah 60. Lift up your eyes, verse 4, all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar. Your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Now, anytime we see this imagery, which we've seen in Isaiah already, we're, we're not seeing that Israel is the center of attention here. It's Yahweh and his servant are the center, center of attention. And there is an intimate relationship now between the nations and Israel. Even brought, and sometimes some people come from a background where you never get shown the gospel in the Old Testament. But this is full of that. This is full of saying they're coming and there's going to be other language about nursing on breast that is is not talking about anything except the intimacy of nations, all the nations, the, the Gentiles and the Jews together in one people of God. Then you, verse 5, shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult. Why? Because the light of God and the glory of Yahweh is spreading throughout the entire world and it's doing God's work. And people are coming for one reason. God has redeemed them. That's the language that will be used all through the chapter. Keep that in your mind. They're coming because God has redeemed them. And that will make his people rejoice. This is what we do, right? When we're preaching the gospel, we rejoice when somebody repents of their sin and turns to Christ. The heavens are full of, the, of the, the celebration of the angels when this happens. And this is what happens when we witness. We are expanding through the power of God and his light shining through us. He's expanding the kingdom through us. He is beautifying his people. That's the language that's used here. Because, why will they exalt and be radiant and, and exalt and be thrilled? Because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, the wealth of the nations shall come to you. A theme we've seen already in Isaiah several times. Then there's the description. A multitude of camels shall cover you. That sounds like a great blessing, doesn't it? Do you like camels, a multitude covering you? Well, it's not the camels, is it? It's the wealth that the camels bring. Camels are pack uh, animals, and they can be loaded with lots of stuff. And so the camels are going to overwhelm them because the wealth is being brought, and it will overwhelm them. And we'll see a picture of this in just a minute. A multitude of camels shall cover you. 
The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. Now let's talk about this, these five geographical places that are mentioned. It's the second time we've seen Isaiah use geographical places to represent the entire world. And he's doing that here. So we have Midian, we have Ephah, we have Sheba, we have Kedar, Kedar we have Nebaioth, we have um, Tarshish, the islands, the coastlands. These are all mentioned to say that God's salvation reaches to the ends of the earth. And it uses that picture of Old Covenant language to show this. So the camels from Midian and Ephah, those from Sheba shall come. So we have Midian in the south. We have Sheba way further south. We have Kedar um, in North Africa. We have Nebaioth, which is it, what is today present-day Jordan. We have Tarshish, which we'll see in a minute, which at that time was considered the, the ends of the earth, the furthest place it could be, probably on the southwest coast of Spain. It's the same Tarshish that Jonah tries to flee to, gets on a ship bound for there. But I want you to turn, if you will, to 1 Kings. Keep your finger in chapter 60. And I want you to see um, 1 Kings, where we see a picture of this in 1 Kings 10. You'll remember this story. So even under the reign of Solomon, we see this happening, foreshadowing what Isaiah says, foreshadowing what Revelation says will be the state of the new Jerusalem in the new heavens and new earth. 1 Kings chapter 10. Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of Yahweh, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue with, what's he bring? What's she bring? With camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food for his table, the seating of his officials and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of Yahweh, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told to me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be Yahweh your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because Yahweh loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and very, a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. That's a grand picture using the same language. Camels, the wealth of the, her nation coming, sitting and wondering, being joyful over the wisdom of God, shining through his people. Now, if you have to flip your page, flip it to chapter 11. See, this is the height. The glory of God is shining, and then in chapter 11, the kingdom begins to crumble 
because the eyes of Solomon are taken off of that wisdom of Yahweh. His light is not shining through Solomon in the same way. And the scripture says that Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. And it says he has 700 wives and princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. This is what happens when we take our mind and our eyes off of God and we pursue our sin so that it's our light that shines, which is no light at all. It is darkness. And that's what Isaiah is telling the people in his day and the people in our day, and he's going to show us where this all leads for us for eternity. Back to Isaiah chapter 60. The middle of verse 6, they shall bring gold and frankincense... Now, the New Testament picks up that theme with joyful giving, right? When, when we see in Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, when the wise men come and they bring gold and frankincense and myrrh, they're bringing the riches of their nation. Now, I want you to see, we're going to have this described even more, but I want you to have this in your mind. This happens today when we preach the gospel. When we preach the gospel and people come to Christ, everything that they have becomes Christ's. They're bringing the riches of, that they have. They're bringing and submitting to God every bit of wealth that they have, every spiritual desire that they have, everything that they think, all their thought processes, all of their priorities are now brought to, the, brought to God and they are all transformed by him. And so it is the wealth of the nations being brought. And if God should so fit to, to bring a, a large portion of one nation to himself through the individual salvation of peoples, then the wealth of that nation will be coming to him. So keep this in mind when we think about the, the beautification that's happening of the temple in these coming verses. Verse 7, all the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. So are we talking about sacrifices being offered at the temple, or are we just using the language of coming to God in the Old Testament? And I submit to you, we're using the language of coming to God, and he accepts them. He accepts, remember, when a sacrifice was given, it was, it was given, and if the sacrifice was accepted, then the person who gave it was accepted by God. That was the purpose of the sacrifice. And so what's being brought is this picture of people coming to God, and he's beautifying his beautiful house. Now, I have to get a little bit ahead of myself here to explain this. Look at verse 9, the last phrase. Because he has made you beautiful... Now look at verse 13, the middle phrase, to beautify the place of my sanctuary. Now these words for beauty and beautify and the words for glory are very related. They both have to do with the glory of God. The, when you see it translated glory, which is throughout our text, we've already seen it one, two, we've already seen it twice and we will see it at least uh, two more times. This is the weightiness of God's character. It is, the, it is the, the, the weightiness, the holiness, the perfection of his character. The word translated beauty or beautify is talking about the beautiful splendor of his glory. So two words to say the same thing. The glory of God is manifested in and through his people. So when he says in verse 7, I will beautify my beautiful house, when we get into the New Testament, what is the temple in the New Testament? Who is the temple? We are. 
When we get into the new heavens and new earth, the new Jerusalem is us. Yes, it's used in pictures of a city, but we already heard this read by Dan earlier. The new Jerusalem is us. And when God brings people into his family, when we preach the gospel and he grants repentance and faith, and they repent of their sins and trust in him, that is beautifying his house. It is beautifying where he dwells because he dwells in us. It's a gorgeous picture for us. Look at verse 8. Who are these that fly like a, like a cloud and like doves to their windows? So in other words, they're, they're moving quickly and they're moving inexorably. This is, this is what doves do. They fly home. They fly back to their windows. Who are these that are doing this? For the coastlands, or the islands, maybe your translation says, shall hope for me. The ships of Tarshish first, from the furthest place, to bring your children from afar. Now, who are their children? Now, this is the same exact wording as sons in verse 4, to bring their sons. But this is all the people that God will bring to himself. It is not just Israelites. It is everyone that God redeems through the sun and his glory shining on people. Their silver and gold with them for the name, why? For the name of Yahweh your God and for the Holy One of Israel because he has made you beautiful. How has he made you beautiful? He has shined his light upon you. You have been redeemed. The glory of God shines upon you and you are now his. And that's what has made you beautiful. That's why you can come. That's why your offering is accepted because Christ has made you beautiful. And this is what we preach to people. But I wonder how much we preach the beauty of Christ and, and, and we just get caught up in the, the negativity of sin, which we have to show people, not saying don't. But do we bring Christ to people as beautiful? As something that is, that is beyond any desire that any person could ever have in the world? Isaiah is just assuming this. And he's assuming that all the people who now are living for God's glory and the light is shining and he's drawing the people to himself, they are rejoicing over this. The second promise was Yahweh will welcome the wealth of the nations and his people will be thrilled. But the third promise, Yahweh's enemies will either bow before him in worship or be destroyed. Look at verses 10 through 14. Here we have language of the, of the walls and of the temple. And I want you to see especially with what we've already learned today. We've already sung, we've already heard from Revelation what the true meaning of these verses are. Foreigners, non-Jews, the Gentiles, shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. So the walls have been torn down because I placed my judgment upon you, but now I have delivered you and redeemed you and they will be built up. Now, there is a sense where those coming back from Babylon, they're coming back and being released under the commands and edicts of Cyrus, and they've been funded, and they're coming back to rebuild the walls, but they're never built like the old ones were in that return. That always is whetting their appetite for something else and something more. Verse 11, your gates shall be open continually, day and night they shall not be shut. Now, in one way, we might be tempted to say those gates being open just means that everything's secure. Because that's what the walls and gates do, right? They keep the bad guys out. They keep the undesirables out. But look what this verse says. Your gates shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut. That, or so that, 
People may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. Now, when you just heard read in Revelation chapter 21, the gates were open so that the kings could bring in. But we're also told that there will be no unrighteousness enter into those gates. They never have to close because the only people who are in the new Jerusalem are those who are redeemed, are those upon whom the light of God has shined in Christ, have repented of their sins and trusted in Christ, and now the light shines through them. They're the only people that will be in. Unrighteousness will not be let in, but the nations who have been redeemed, who have been beautified, the same imagery is used that they will bring their wealth into this new Jerusalem, and it will be beautified by their coming because they are all now reflecting the glory of God. But verse 12 is right in the center. It's actually right in the center of our text, but it is right in the center of this section as well. For the nations and kingdoms that will not serve you shall perish. Now, when we, when we read these languages, serving you, serving Israel, we're not talking about them serving Israel as a people. We're talking about them serving Israel's God, because now they're the ones shining the light. And all the nations that come and join them are shining the light in glory. And if the people refuse to bow before the light, before the glory, they will not be saved. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. Now we have seen that how many times in Isaiah? Judgment and hope. Here is its fulfillment. Judgment for those who refuse to bow their knee and worship, bow before the light, the glory of God shining in Christ, and those who will do that because God has shined in their hearts and they see the beauty of Jesus and God grants them that repentance to be saved. Verse 13, the glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine. Now that's using that old temple, old covenant language. It was, it was the cedars of Lebanon that made the temple beautiful and that, that the temple was built from according to 1 Kings chapter 7. And in the same way that made the temple beautiful, the middle of verse 13, to beautify the place of my sanctuary and I will make the place of my feet glorious. So the place of my feet, it, this is Yahweh's footstool. This is the temple itself. Because if you remember, well, there's a lot of theology here. I'm just going to assume you know. But if you remember going back to our, our sermon series on the promised seed and the battle between the seeds, we saw that in creation, we saw creation was an example of the heavenly temple within the, within, brought within the creation, within the garden, and, the, and, and all of God's creation and God's dwelling place. And we saw that all the way through, God had the temple built, but he's also restoring the temple and his people. And then at the end, we're in the new Jerusalem. Jerusalem, we're moving from the garden to the city. All of that theology is built into this verse because God, it's his footstool. The entire earth, everything that is created and all of his people now are his. Verse 14, the sons of those who afflicted you. This is the beginning of a, it actually starts in earnest in verse 15, but we see it foreshadowed here, the reversals. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. In other words, those who hated me will now come worshiping me, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. Now, I want to I remind you of something that one commentator pointed out and I'd not thought of or have not connected before. In Revelation chapter 3, to, to the, the letter to the church in Sardis, we read this, these words. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not... 
Now, why would they, in the time of Revelation, if someone is saying they are Jews but they're not, what would make them not true Jews, according to, to the angel that is giving these rebukes? That they didn't believe in the Messiah. Because true Jews would believe in the Messiah when the Messiah came. That's all the Old Testament tells us. And so... In the rebuke, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. That same language that is in Isaiah chapter 60. They, the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. Whether that's going to be in worship or in judgment, that's the picture that is used. But these are the groups. They shall call you the city of Yahweh, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Now this idea of a city should capture us. We look at our cities today and we are prone to see destruction in our cities. And I'm not talking about who rules it or what governments are there. I'm talking about the destruction that is there because of the attitudes of sinfulness and the wisdom of man. And I read a story this week of a man in, Cal uh, in Chicago, it was in 2020, who was up on a rooftop in a tent and under a protest because he was a pastor in south side of Chicago and he wanted people to know, draw, he wanted to draw attention to the horrid living conditions in the south side brought on by what he thought was a government that was not caring for people. And on the 120th day, he was joined by two other pastors. One of them uh, was a man uh, by the name of, I'll find his name, Mark Job, who was the, is still the president of Moody Bible College. And he told the story at this press conference that came afterward. He told the story of a former mayor of Chicago. He didn't name him. He said he wasn't going to name him. And he came to a pastor's group. And when he came to that pastor's group, um, this is what he said. Our city is in a mess. There's violence. We don't have the answers to this. We can try to police it. We can try to educate it. We can try to create business opportunities. But we have a soul problem in this city. And the pastor said, gentlemen, or the, the mayor said, gentlemen, what you have to offer is really the answer. Now, all our cities have a soul problem, but it's not the city's soul, is it? It is the souls of the people in the city. It is the souls of the people in government. It is the souls that are enemies of God. We are the ones who go out in the midst of that and preach Christ because the light and his glory is dawned on us so that we go out and tell people that there is hope in Jesus. It, it, they, they need to turn from their sin. Isaiah is very clear that the unrepentant will be judged. Amen? And the New Testament is no different. If you're here today and you refuse to repent of your sin and put your trust in Jesus, there is no salvation for you because your own righteousness cannot stand before a holy God. The holy God we just sang about this morning. You will be sent to eternal judgment. So you must turn to Christ today and we must command that people do that. And as that happens, God will change the face of families and churches and neighborhoods, and small towns, and cities, and should he desire entire nations. Because it's his light and his glory shining through his people, and he is beautifying his people by bringing all of those from all the nations, Jews included, into faith in Christ. We'll look at the final promise. Yahweh will transform his people and their city because he is their redeemer, 
Savior, light, and glory. Look at verse 15. Whereas, now this is full of transformational language. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, so you've been forsaken by me when I've judged you and so hated by the people with no one passing through. There's that barren language that has happened all the way through Isaiah. I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You'll be totally and completely transformed. You shall suck the milk of nations. You shall nurse at the breast of kings. And you shall know that I, Yahweh, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. You will know because my light and my glory has dawned upon you and you will be coming to the mountain, that is, into the presence of God with Jew and Gentile and all the nations together. And this will please God. It will bring him even more glory. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze, stones, iron. So that, we're not, we're not to get caught up in what is being the, the, the specific transformations, but that God is going to overturn everything. Everything is going to look different. Symbolized mostly in this section of Isaiah by light replacing darkness. Light dawning on darkness. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Now how can that be? How can it be that now the leaders, those who are in charge, will now have peace and righteousness as their goal? Well, this is something else we learned many moons ago in Isaiah in chapter 9. Familiar verses to you, but and we've looked at these last week as well. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government, the overseers, the taskmasters, shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forever and evermore, the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. The zeal that... that uh, constant and perpetual commitment of the Lord to carry this out. That's how peace and righteousness reign in his perfect city because Christ is that and he brings that. And if that's the case, look at verse 18. Violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. Your walls aren't going to need for protection anymore. They're going to shout the salvation of the Lord because only those who have received his glory upon them that, that his glory is shined will be there. And it will shout salvation and shout praise because that's what his people do. Preach the gospel and praise God. That's our role. If you want to sum everything up, we're preaching the gospel and praising God. And in the midst of it, we're crucifying sin because we are the redeemed. No one else can do that. No one else can do that. They might be able to confess to each other all the stuff you learned in Luke's class this morning, but to truly stand before God and accept it takes the work of Christ. Amen. Now, in 19, we get into the place where our excitement should be building. The, if we had a musical score, it would, it would be helping us along to understand this growing excitement on where we are headed. Up until now, we've talked about the already and not yet. Everything that's been said is true of us today. It's just true of us today in a world that's fighting sin, and we are people who are fighting sin. 
But there's going to come a day where the mourning will cease. There will be no more death and no more dying. It will cease and for eternity will look like this. Look at verse 19. The sun shall, no, shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But Yahweh will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your own glory. Revelation 21.11. We've already learned, heard this this morning read for us. Your sun shall no more go down as your moon, nor your moon withdraw itself, because they're not needed anymore in the new heavens and new earth with the new Jerusalem. It is Christ. It is the Lamb who is the light. For Yahweh will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Revelation 21.4, there will be no more mourning, no more death, no more dying, no more tears are shed. Your people shall, be all, shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. Now, are we clear here that the land is not a piece of dirt? Are we clear? This is the new heavens and the new earth. This is the new Jerusalem. This is where the promises are fulfilled in Christ for all who believe in him, Jew and Gentile. It is to be with him forever, worshiping him face to face because his righteousness is now ours. His glory is what lights everything for us on that day. Now, we experience that here, but oh, what a day that will be. What a day that will be when God sends his son again to return or takes us home and we get the taste of what that will be on that day. And it's sure. Look at verse 21. Your people shall be all, all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. Now this is the branch of Yahweh's planting and the work of his hands. Are we sure that it's going to happen? Is there any doubt in our mind that this will be our resting place? There is none. And if there is no doubt in our mind that that is our eternal rest, and we have entered into it, as the author of Hebrews says, we've entered into it now, how much more does that empower us to be light and reflecting God's glory in the world? It, it should not only empower us, it should make us think, that is my purpose and I will do nothing else. Is that the way you wake up in the morning? Everything I do today is going to shine God's glory because his glory has shined on me. Everything I do today is going to shine the light of God, the light of Christ, because it's shined on me. I'll confess to you that is not my morning enough. Is it yours? And I'll confess to you that it's not, when it's not my morning, all of a sudden my joy is gone, just sapped. Just like somebody pulled out some tool and just sucks the joy right out of me. The key to living a joyful life is to be radiant about the glory of God, advancing in his kingdom exactly as he says it will to the end that he promises that he will do. And we get to be a part of it because we are those who are in Christ. Last verse. And notice at the end of 21, that I might be glorified. 22, the, la the least one shall become a clan, literally a thousand and the smallest one, a mighty nation. There's the Abrahamic promise fulfilled in the spiritual seed of Abraham. You see that? The spiritual seed of Abraham. Not, just, not the physical seed, but the spiritual seed. I am Yahweh in its time. In its time, I will hasten it. That's why we have passages like Galatians chapter 3. In the, in the fullness of time, God sent his son, right? 
when God chose to do it. That's why we have those passages like Hebrews chapter 13. And and later, even in Galatians, we move in the same chapter from the fullness of time in verse 4 to later on with with the, the two covenants compared. And in those two covenants that are compared, Isaiah language is used there to describe the new covenant and its eternal end. And then in Hebrews chapter 13, that you have not gone to the Mount Sinai, you have come to the, to the city of the living God. You have come to that city. That's where you have come. I don't have time to read those passages, but I want you to consider those. Hebrews 13, Galatians 4, that you would see the glory of Isaiah preached in the New Testament and then given to us as the ultimate promise in the book of Revelation. And it's time God does it. And in its time, he will send Jesus again to consummate his kingdom. In his time. Will you be ready? If it happens now, are you ready? Some of you children who sit under preaching every single week and sit under the worship of your families, are you ready? Some of you may have sat here all of your life in these very chairs and you nod and you intellectually know, but inside you know you have never repented because the light of Christ does not shine through you because it is not shined on you. Today is the day for you to repent of your sins and turn to him and start building his kingdom by your light shining, which is actually his light. So he beautifies his house, the people of God. This is what we're doing today in baptism, is it not? We have three youngsters who are coming forward because the light of Christ has shined upon them. And now they want to come forward and give you that testimony to let the glory of God and the light of God shine through them to say what God has accomplished in their life and then to go into the waters of baptism. So the symbol of being buried with Christ, dying with Christ, and being raised to the newness of life, it preaches. Yes, baptism preaches. And that's what they come forward to do, to shine their light. And it's a result of this church and specifically their families shining the light that Christ has shined on them so that they come to faith in Christ. This is a glorious day. I couldn't have, if I would have chose a passage of scripture before a baptism Sunday, it wouldn't have been this applicable. This is glorious for us. So I'm going to pray, and as those who are being baptized come forward, we're going to hear their testimonies, and then we'll pray for them, and then we will baptize. And you need to know that in our church, um, fathers who understand baptism and understand our theology, we uh, give the opportunity to baptize their children should they desire as a family to do that. We don't think it's the pastor that has to do it, but um, I always love to baptize um, children. So this morning, Mikey will baptize two of his children, and I'll baptize Trilby, the, the, the third baptismal candidate this morning. So don't be confused that I'm not baptizing them all. It's just the way we do things. We believe it glorifies God in this way. So let me pray, and then we'll have this joyful baptism service, and then we'll sing and be dismissed. Father, we are grateful to you for your grace, for your mercy, for your word. We are thankful, Lord, that your word is so powerful, and that as we understand in your word that we are We have received your light and your glory, and when we live according to your precepts and your word, we shine forth. And it's our light only because you gave it to us, because it's actually yours. So we pray, Father, this morning that you would encourage us to be those light bearers, that you would encourage us to be those who seek to beautify your people by seeing more of your elect come to faith in Christ. 
We pray, Father, that this morning as the, the, this baptism is a reflection of what you've done in these three precious young people, that you would continue in their life, uh, giving them the understanding of what it means to shine your light and your glory to all those around them. We are just grateful, Father, for your blessings to us. And we do rejoice. We, we are overjoyed in our heart that you do this in us. So we thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.